And let's turn in God's Word to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Chapter 9. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring you a copy of the Scriptures. If you're new to the Bible, look in the front opening pages and you'll find a table of contents. You can find the page number for the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. And turn to Luke chapter 9. This morning we're going to look at six verses. Verses 57 through verse 62 in the ninth chapter of Luke's Gospel. Please follow along in the Bible as I read and as we study God's Word together this morning. Luke chapter 9, verse 57 through 62. If you're there, say, got it. Good enough. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I want to preach to you this morning on the theme, the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father, as we get into your word, we do ask that you would speak to us through the scriptures. We recognize that this is your inerrant, inspired word to us. For us today, in the 21st century, as relevant as it was 2,000 years ago, I pray that it will be relevant in the heart of every soul in this room. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Rosaria Butterfield identified herself as a lesbian as a university professor, she chaired the LGBTQ department on campus. She was in a relationship with another woman. Her whole entire life was built around her understanding of herself as, a, as part of the LGBTQ community. As an English professor, 
Rosaria had read the Bible three times as literature. And as someone who understands literature and knows how to read literature, she knew that as she was living her life, she could never be a Christian. She had read various different interpretations and takes on the Bible, and she knew that all of those was just not a good way to read literature. One day she met a pastor, and that began a relationship with someone who was loving and welcoming with open arms, an invitation to Bible study, meals in his home. For about three years or so, Rosaria studied the scriptures and wrestled with the gospel. And what she came to realize was that if she were to become a Christian, it would literally cost her everything she knows. Everything. From her relationships, to her career, to the investment in students' lives, everything she knows would be lost. She came to believe the gospel, that it's true. And she wrestled with the cost of what it means to follow Christ. She had been attending this pastor's church for some time and got to know a number of the, the members there, and, and she felt it was a little unfair. For so many of them, it just seemed easy to follow Jesus. For her, it seemed like it would cost so much. And so one Sunday, as she's wrestling with this, she, she, she began going around talking to other members uh, of this church. And she asked them this question. What did following Jesus, or what does following Jesus cost you? And she thought that the response was going to be, well, it doesn't cost me much. What she discovered was that for every single member in the church, they responded in some fashion similar to following Jesus cost me everything I knew. It was a complete transformation of my life. Everything I clung to prior to Christ, I had to let go of. And what she realized was for disciples of Jesus Christ, the cost was not high for her alone. The cost was high for every single individual who says yes to Jesus Christ. What does following Jesus cost you? You see, for too many today, we have exchanged God's grace for a cheap grace. Cheap grace is forgiveness without the substitutionary atonement of the cross. Cheap grace is salvation without any call for repentance. Too many 
today. See Jesus as a nice addition to their otherwise happy life, but not as a transformation of their life. Too many today don't believe that following Jesus is really going to cost them their comforts and their traditions and their relationships. I read this text that's before us today, and in verse 57, I, I hear the, the, the statement that is made by this first man, I will follow you wherever you go. And I wonder if he understands what he's saying. Luke tells us that Jesus and his disciples are met by this man along the road. He's traveling. The rabbis of his day would travel from village to village and they would teach the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible or a reference for the entire Old Testament. And here comes a man who's interested in following this teacher and, and assumes probably that he's going to learn his understanding of the Torah. But for Jesus, in addition to teaching the Torah, he's got a whole lot more. For Jesus, what it means to be a follower, one of his disciples, means a, a radical transformation of everything you know. And so he makes this declaration, I will follow you wherever you go. And I want to ask him, are you sure? Do you understand the cost of discipleship? Many are eager to serve. Many are eager to be on the mission, but do they understand the cost of discipleship? What is the cost of following Jesus? Well, in this first instance with this first individual, we see that following Jesus costs you your comforts. We see this in verses 57 and 58. In verse 57, they're met along the road. He, the, the, the man uh, declares that he will follow Jesus wherever he goes. And it's at this point we discover that Jesus is living a less than luxurious lifestyle. Jesus' response to the man, just so he understands what he's asking... Jesus' response to the man is simply this, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now this is not a command that all Christians everywhere ought to pursue homelessness. As a matter of fact, the same Jesus said in Matthew 6, 26, look at the birds. If God takes care of the birds... How much more will God take care of you? This isn't a command that we all must be homeless. This is an actual narrative of Jesus' life. Meaning the creator of the world, when he came into this world, was homeless. The God of all creation 
When he moved into society, he didn't live in a condo by the water. Uh, He wasn't sleeping on a memory foam air mattress. Central air conditioning was not something that he prioritized. When the creator of the world came into this world, what we discover is that even the foxes had nicer dwelling places than Jesus. Even the birds had a place to sleep at night that was comfortable for them. His whole life is characterized by suffering. He was in the world, the Bible says, but the world knew Him not. He came unto His own, but His own did not receive Him. Following Jesus means we give up our comforts in this world. I think we can easily apply this and simply say, first of all, that luxurious living is not characteristic of a follower of Jesus Christ. While some so-called Christians try to make luxurious living part of the gospel, we read the gospel and discover Jesus was homeless. A follower of Jesus Christ, then, is too concerned with sharing the gospel with the lost. Uh, She is too concerned with hospitality and loving her neighbor and giving herself to uh, the needy. Uh, He he is too concerned with, with caring for his children and raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The follower of Jesus Christ realizes that life is short. And to be frank, we just don't have time to pursue the luxuries and comforts that others in this world pursue. I'm glad we got one amen. Everybody else is like, I don't know about this. I'm going to just book that vacation last night. <laughs> this isn't to say that we don't go on a vacation. This isn't to say that you, 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 you are there's a rule against buying a nice house. But the point is this, the quality of your life is not based on the quality of your house, but it's based on the quality of your Savior. We find our comforts not in what we can have, we find our comforts in who He is. So therefore, Christians live intentionally in this world. Christians live in communities and in countries that are less than desirable for the sake of the gospel. There are Christians in this room who intentionally moved onto drug-infested blocks when they could have moved somewhere else because of the this mission because Jesus led them there. There are those in this room who could have got up on out of this city but chose to remain because that's where Jesus led them. We go where He leads 
not where our comforts lead us. Now, I want to be clear, we are not called to intentional suffering. That is lunacy. We don't try to bring pain upon ourselves. That's craziness. But we are called to intentional living. And that living is shaped by who Jesus is and this greater mission that we are part of and we follow Him. The point is simple. As we're following Jesus, comfort takes second place. Comfort takes second place. This story goes on, and there's another instance. There's a second man that comes. And here we see that following Jesus not only costs you your comforts, following Jesus costs you your traditions in verses 59 and 60. Now, before we study this, let me just say some traditions, many traditions are very good. Weddings, sports celebrations, high school graduations, many things that we value in life and prioritize in life are in fact very good. But listen, many people in this world will miss Jesus not because of bad things in life, but because of a thousand good things in life. I have friends who have gotten into the habit of forsaking the assembly not because of bad things, but because of good things. Do you know why people stop showing up for church? It's not because of bad things. It's not because they're currently out getting wasted right now at 10.30 in the morning. It's not even that they were necessarily wasted last night. Why is it that people get in the habit of forsaking the assembly? It's often because of a thousand good things in life. It's a, a child's birthday party that happens to fall on a Sunday morning. And then the next week, an uncle's graduation celebration. And then uh, the, the week after that is just a week at home with the family because we need to recoup. And then the week after that is a little getaway to grandma's house. Many people will miss Jesus Christ in this world because Jesus has been crowded out by good things. By good traditions. By good celebrations. As we come into this next story, a man is, is now called by Jesus to follow him. And the man says in verse 59, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, some interpreters believe that the man's motivations are off here. Uh, some commentaries would explain that uh, the, the man is just making an excuse. Maybe his father is still alive, and he is just sick. And, and he wants, there's part of him that wants to follow Jesus, but, but really he's just making an excuse and saying, well, i got to deal with this first, and, and just putting Jesus off. That's possible, but I don't think that's likely. I think what's likely is the man 
has a father who has actually died and needs to be buried. I think the reality of the situation is what makes Jesus' response so shocking. I, 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 I see Jesus himself, he, he says to the man, uh, let the dead bury the dead. Jesus seems to assume that the father is actually dead. And that there is a burial that actually needs to take place. And if you know anything about ancient uh, uh, Palestinian culture, burials were extremely important. This is a very important tradition to this man and his culture in which he lives. If this man has a father who has passed, interesting text for Father's Day, by the way, isn't it? He has a father who has passed, and he needs to be buried, and he chooses to not be part of the burial, that would have been, in his culture, an extremely shameful thing to do, to walk away from it. He would have been despised by so many. And so that's Jesus' response, that's why Jesus' response is therefore so shocking as he essentially tells the man, don't, don't, don't go bury him. You're standing at a crossroads. Remember, Jesus is moving down the road. He's heading out of the village. He's going to another village. Jesus is heading this way, and your father's burial is back that way. I believe that the point of Jesus' response, which is meant to be shocking, the point of his response is to say this, that even reasonable requests take second place to following Jesus. Even something as important as burying your father takes second place to following Jesus. There is no tradition that can get in the way of us following Jesus. Jesus goes on and he says, let the dead bury the dead. Uh, I think what he's saying is, 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 I'm going this way. Your father's burial is back that way. Uh, let the spiritually dead take care of the burial because you need to be coming with me. But he gives him more. He doesn't stop there. He says, he gives him the reason. He says, uh, uh, as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What's Jesus saying to this man? He's commissioning him. He has a greater word for this man. A greater task for this man. In John chapter 5, verse 25, we see an hour is coming and is now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. What Jesus is saying is that there is a greater mission at, at hand, a mission not of death, but of life. And I'm giving you this task to proclaim this message. This is very similar, by the way, to Jesus looking at his disciples earlier, telling them, don't fish anymore. Stop fishing for fish and come with me and fish for people. In the same way, he says, stop mourning the dead 
and come with me and start preaching a gospel that brings life to the dead. Now, Jesus is no more against eating uh, uh, fish with his disciples than he is going to a funeral. This isn't a rule against going to funerals. The point is simple. Following Jesus is bigger and greater and must take first priority over our traditions and over good things and over reasonable requests. And as we follow Christ, we are given this message to proclaim, this good news. I wonder if you know this good news of the kingdom. The, the news which begins with the fact that we are all spiritually dead. His father's physical death was not, is not the, the, the worst of their problems. The worst of their problems is our spiritual death. We are all spiritually dead. Now, let's be clear. We are spiritually alive. I'm sorry, we are physically alive. We are very alive in many ways. We are alive to one another. We can love each other. We can accomplish good things in this world. But at our most critical point, we are spiritually dead, which means that we cannot know God. It means that we cannot love God. It means that if we remain in this condition until our physical death, that beyond this life, all we have left is our spiritual death. And we will spend eternity in hell. Well, that's bad news. And I was talking about good news. Jesus is talking about good news. What is the gospel of the kingdom? It's that Jesus Christ, who has never been spiritually dead, lived a life spiritually alive to the Father. Lived the life that you and I should have lived but could not have lived because of our sin. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He who knew no death became death so that those who are dead might become alive in Him. He took on the curse of death in his own body on the cross, and he paid the price. And praise God, Amen. three days later, he conquers death. Three days later, he gets up from the dead and calls to us in our responses to turn from our deadness, to turn from our sin, and to trust in Jesus Christ. And what we discover is that we don't make ourselves alive, but he has made us alive in him. We are awoken to new life in Jesus Christ. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, the very core of what it means to follow Christ is to share and spread that message. So I can actually apply this sermon directly at this point. What is keeping you from proclaiming that message? What are some good things that are crowding out your ability to encourage the saints with that message? What are some good things that are crowding out your ability to get to know your neighbors and the lost and some co-workers and some kids in the neighborhood to, to be able to share this message of Jesus Christ? It is costly to follow Christ. It is costly to be His disciple, but it's the message of life 
and the dead who hear this message, they come alive. They come alive. And I've seen it in this church. I've seen it with you. I've seen it with so many. Someone just spiritually as dead as a doorknob and they hear this message and God gives them ears to hear and they come alive. They come alive. But it's costly to follow Christ. It is costly. The point is simple. Tradition takes second place to following Jesus. There's a third man in this story who comes up to Christ as well. And we discover in these last two verses, verses 61 and 62, that following Jesus costs you your relationships. Following Jesus costs you your comfort. It costs you your traditions. And it costs you your relationships. I've read this letter before. And I asked a couple of friends of mine in the church if they remember me reading it in the past, and they don't. So I figured none of you remember me reading this. You see, you recycle illustrations once every four or five years because people forget them. This is a letter from Adoniram Judson to the father of a young lady that he fell in love with. Adoniram Judson, around the year 1810, 1811, felt called to go to India and then eventually Burma, just off of the coast of India. It was going to be a very dangerous mission in the early 19th century. And he fell in love with a young lady named Anne. He asked Anne if she would marry him, and Anne said, you're going to have to ask my father and I hope Jaden and Eden heard that point. <laughs> and so Adoniram Judson wrote this letter to Anne's father asking for his daughter's hand in marriage. And I want you to hear what he says to, to her father. I have now to ask you whether you can consent to be part of to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary. Whether you can consent to, uh, consent to her exposure to dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory, with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe 
and despair. Following Jesus costs you your relationships. Following Jesus for Anne Judson meant as a young woman to say goodbye to her father. It meant for her father, fathers on Father's Day, to love Jesus more than his daughter in this world. It meant for his, her father to part from her, to send her across the ocean, to live a, a, a horrific life seeking to make disciples of a lost people group. And he willingly and freely and with rejoicing said yes to this. And Anne dies at 36 years old in Burma. Following Jesus is costly. We have to prioritize Jesus more than our closest relationships in this world. More than your children. More than your father and your mother and your friends. They all take secondary, second place to Jesus Christ. Where He leads, I will go. This third man comes to Jesus. And if the first two instances were shocking, this one even more so. In verse 61, another says, I will follow you, Lord. But, simple request, let me first say farewell to those at my home. The man wants to say goodbye. That's all he's asked for. Again, a reasonable request. There's no indication his motives are off. He's just simply saying, can I go say goodbye? In, in 1 Kings chapter 19, the 20th verse, as Elijah calls Elisha to follow him, this is Elisha's request to Elijah. Elisha asks Elijah, let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. Elijah's fine with that, of course. Elisha says goodbye and follows the prophet Elijah. It's a reasonable request. Can I say goodbye first? As we read Jesus' response, we have to understand that Jesus believed that he was better than Elijah. We have to understand that Jesus believed that following him is far more important than following even the greatest saint of the Old Testament. And he gives this man not, not necessarily a denial, but he gives him a warning. In verse 62, Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. What he is saying is simply this. There is great danger in looking back. There is real danger for this man to walk away from Jesus, say goodbye, see the tear in his mother's eye, and he changes his mind. Do you realize it's not worth it to lose Jesus because you love someone so much? 
He's more important than our relationships with each other. And so he gives him a warning. Do not look back. In ancient Palestine, tilling the ground was hard work. In this rocky soil, the farmer must keep both of his hands on the plow. To look back is to veer off. The work is hard. It's challenging. It's dangerous. It's difficult. To look back is to stumble. To look back is to fall. To fall off a cliff. Paul says in Philippians 3.13, thinking of his own life, his own past, and his own future, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The Apostle is saying, nothing of my former life can take priority over following Jesus Christ. There is no relationship that I can allow to take priority over following Jesus Christ. Now this doesn't sit well with many. These warnings and these denials, this, for, for many they just feel like Jesus is he's hassling them. He's, he's being harsh. It's because people don't understand the cost of discipleship. It's because people don't understand the infinite worth of Jesus Christ. It's because too many are focused on this world. Now, I've got to emphasize, again, these are examples, not rules. These are examples, not rules. So don't ignore your father today and blame it on me. All right? I don't want any angry emails from dad. Sometimes following Jesus means that we actually buy a home with an extra room in it so we can provide some extra space for the lost. Sometimes following Jesus means that we travel across the country to be at our father's funeral so we can celebrate his life and be salt and light to our siblings. Sometimes following Jesus means that we actually take a step back from some outreach programs and so-called ministries so that we can focus on our families. But the point is, it is always costly. It is always costly. Following Jesus always costs you your comforts, your wants, your pleasures, your desires. I, I feel like I have to apply this to fathers since today's Father's Day. Fathers, sometimes following Jesus means we stop looking at everything else and look at our children. We can preach to them all day long, but 
they, 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 they feel God's love as we love them. A politician in the early 1800s, Charles Francis Adams, he kept a diary. One day in his diary, it is recorded, went fishing with my son today, a day wasted. His son, Brooke Adams, also kept a diary. On that same day, Brooke wrote this, went fishing with my father today, the most wonderful day in my life. Dads, sometimes following Jesus means we get our eyes off of our careers, our aspirations, our desires, and we look at our children. But the application remains, the point remains, it's always costly. It's costly to follow Jesus. You know you're following Jesus when it is costly. But too many today do not want a highly priced faith they want a throwaway faith. Many today don't want the Christ of God. They want the Christ of success. They want Jesus the therapist, not Jesus the Lord. They want the Jesus of their imagination, not the Jesus of the New Testament. They want Christ contained, not Christ crucified. They want cheap grace, not costly grace. They want Jesus as an addition to their life, not Jesus as a renovation of their life. We miss Jesus in life not simply because of bad things, but because of so many good things, because of thousands of good things, and we just don't have time. Let me ask you the same question I asked at the beginning. What does it cost you to follow Jesus? What will it cost you to follow Jesus? For some, it literally means relationships, friends, traditions, family. But for all of us, it means our pleasures. It means our pride. It means the things that we have invested in, that we cling to with all of our might that we find our identity in. It is costly to follow Jesus. But it is not loss. It is gain. The Apostle Paul goes on. He says, I press toward the goal... For the prize. Everybody say prize. I like prizes. Who doesn't like prizes? I was in the uh, market yesterday with, with uh, my, my kids, and I noticed that on cereal boxes, they still have a little prize in some of the cereal boxes. I didn't know they did that anymore. You know, you guys know what I'm talking about? I, I remember like as a kid, when we got cereal, that was all I cared about. And you know, they don't put the prize just inside the box. They put it in the bag. And not in the bag on top of the cereal. They put it in the bag on the bottom of the cereal. Which means you've got to dump out the cereal to get the prize. 
which I did. And I would get in trouble for it. But listen, in that moment, I didn't care about the fruity pebbles. I wanted the prize. And so it's worth losing everything so that I can grab hold of the prize. Are you tracking with me? I wonder if I could make that preach a little bit here. <laughs> your worth is worth being poured out. I'm sorry, your life is worth being poured out to get the prize. To call Jesus a prize means that he is more valuable than your life. Listen, the Bible never says that your wife is a prize. The Bible never says your kids are a prize. The Bible never says your career is a prize. The Bible never says that your very existence is a prize. Now, don't get me wrong. All of those things are wonderful and valuable, but they only find their value or they find much more value as we rightly understand the prize. Jesus Christ is the prize. Not my desires. Not my aspirations. Christ alone is the prize. And so Christ then comes before everything else. And everything else then is ordered behind the prize of Jesus Christ. And when your wife and your kids and your husband and your job and all of these things are rightly ordered behind Jesus Christ, check it out, they are finally ordered in the right way. And they will be happiest behind Jesus Christ, not in front of Him. We go for the prize. We don't lose. He's the prize. This is what we mean by the word worthy. You ever wonder sometimes we sing these songs and the word worthy comes up. What does that mean that Jesus is worthy? Well, it means that He is the prize. It means He is worthy of everything. He's worthy of dumping out that cereal and grabbing hold on to the prize. He's worthy of all of our power. All of our glory, all of our honor, all of our majesty. He's worthy of all of our comforts. He's worthy of all of our traditions. He's worthy of all of our relationships. He's worthy of your friends and your family. Listen, your friends and your family never died on the cross for you. Your comforts never saved you from your sin. So therefore, He is worthy. Only Jesus died for you. Only Jesus is the Savior. Oh, He's worthy. It is costly to follow Jesus Christ. And grace cost Jesus Christ everything. Grace cost him his glory as he put it off and entered the world. Grace cost him his ease as he willingly took on a life of temptation yet without sin. Grace cost him his comfort as he had no place to lay his head, no bed to sleep in at night. Grace costs him his very life as he dies in my place. When we talk about 
the cost of following Jesus. We do not uh, abandon. We do not pay this cost. We do not uh, give up everything in some kind of reluctant way. We don't do this in a way that is begrudging. But when we think about all He's done, when we think about what He's done for me, when you think about what He's done for you, where you once were and where you now are, we willingly give all that we are to Him. And we say, yes, He's worth my life. He's worth the cost. He died for me. And thanks be to God, the Father accepts the price that was paid. And three days later, He rises from the dead and He shows His disciples that you can lose this life. I've got something more. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Jesus Christ is worthy of all that we are. We thank You that He is the prize to be sought after. God, I pray that there isn't one person in this room that would walk out of here clinging to any ideology, to any sin, to any good thing, prioritizing and prizing that thing above Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that we as a family, as a church, would cherish Jesus with all that we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.